man, Christian Bale is such a good actor. The guy can't sing so well, though. Um, hey, how's it going, guys? Did you guys, tired? That's good. That's good. Did you guys enjoy your day today? Good. I am so, so glad. Uh, counselors, I've got some good news for you. They're going to sleep better tonight, okay? Um, they just are. All right, so this week we've been talking, we've been talking about the attributes of God, the character of God, who God is as he shows himself to Moses and to his people in the story of the Exodus. And so we saw last night at the burning bush, God's first impression that he makes on Moses is that he is holy. He shows him his beauty, his glory, his power. Ultimately, he shows him his holiness. And then this morning, we saw that as Moses went, as he followed what God told him to do, and as he went to Pharaoh, one of the most powerful men on earth, and he stood before Pharaoh, he said, Pharaoh, God has said to let his people go. And Pharaoh denied that. He disobeyed God. He chose to follow himself instead of following God. And what we saw was God's wrath. We saw his justice. We saw his righteous judgment of wickedness and of sin. We saw that played out in the plagues and we saw it come to its, its fullest um, demonstration today, just now, so we saw that 10th and final plague. And the plague that we saw in the video is one for one, the plague that we see in Scripture. What you saw in that film, while it wasn't actually in a Western in real life, that happened. It happened to the Egyptians, these wicked people who had been enslaving God's people, who had been denying God, who had been worshiping these false gods, and so God executed his, his judgment against them in that 10th and that final plague. And so today I want to talk a little bit about that plague, that final plague, the death of the firstborn. I want to talk about why that plague was executed on the Egyptians, but not on the Israelites. Because it's important, the answer might be a little bit different than what you're thinking. So you might think that the reason that that plague went against the Egyptians and not against the Israelites is because the Israelites are the good guys. Because the Israelites did the right thing. But that's not it at all. You see, in Scripture what we see is that the Israelites, God's people, had not been worshiping him and following him. In fact, they were sinners just like the Egyptians were. And they were worthy of God's wrath just like the Egyptians were. But still, God's wrath was not poured out on them. So the question is why? Well, let's open up our Bibles. Let's look and see. We'll be in Exodus chapter 12 tonight. Exodus chapter 12. So we continue on in the story of Exodus, the story of Moses, the Israelites, and how God saves them and delivers them from Egypt. So, after these first nine plagues, each of them more extreme than the last, after these first nine demonstrations of God's power, 
he warns of the tenth and final plague. And this is what he says. Look at Exodus 12. We'll start in verse 5. So God has warned that he will go through all of Egypt and he will strike down the firstborn of every family. The firstborn son of every family will be struck down, will be killed. But he gives his people a way to escape it. And that's what we see here in, in chapter 12, starting in verse 5. Tells them that they should take a lamb. He says in verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And then they shall take some of the blood, and they shall put it on their two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. So they're to take this blood and they paint it on the doorpost going up and on the lintel that's going across the door. So they're covering the door in the blood of this lamb. It says then in verse 8, Then they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on a fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. He goes on, he explains a little bit more detail of exactly how they're supposed to cook this lamb after they've painted its blood on their doorpost. And then jumping down to verse 12, he says this, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments, for I am the Lord. Now listen to this. But the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God gives this very clear warning of what is going to happen. He says, I'm going to execute my judgment. I'm going to come through and I will strike down all of the firstborn. And so what you need to do is this. You need to kill a lamb. You need to paint its blood over the doorpost of your house. And when I'm going through the land and I see the blood over your door, I will pass over your house and no plague will befall you. And because God is a God who keeps his promises... What he said will happen is exactly what we see happen later in chapter 12. Look at verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. 
Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. So finally, Pharaoh has seen the power of God, the might of God. He has felt the wrath of God. And so he says, go, go. But here's the thing I want to focus on. You see, this 10th and final plague went through Egypt and God struck down the firstborn of every household. And it said there that among the Egyptians, there was not a single house where someone was not dead the next morning. That every single house was victim to this plague. Why? Because they deserved the judgment of God. Because they had earned the wrath of God. But God's people, the Israelites, they deserved God's judgment too. They had worshiped false gods as well. They had sinned against God just like the Egyptians had. So why were the Israelites spared from God's judgment? It's not because they were the good guys. It's because they were covered in the blood of the Lamb. It's because God had provided a way for them to be saved from his righteous judgment. And that way for them to be saved was to kill a perfect, it says spotless lamb. A lamb without blemish or spot. A young lamb, perfect, without blemish or spot. They had to kill it and they had to cover their doorpost in its blood so that the wrath of God would pass over them. And this meal that they had that night became a meal that was celebrated every year, and even still today, Jewish people will celebrate this meal, this meal of Passover, where they remember the night when God the wrath of God passed over their homes in executing judgment on the Egyptians. And this Passover, this Passover that we see play out in the book of Exodus, it set, sets up and starts off a sacrificial system that God's people, the Israelites, will then practice for the next 1,500 years. Because you see, if you were to continue reading in your Bible beyond the book of Exodus, you get to Numbers, Deuteronomy, you get to Leviticus, you get to what we call the law, the section of the Bible that we call the law. And what we see is there are entire books of the Bible that are devoted to outlining this system of sacrifice that has been kicked off here at the Passover. This very intricate, complex system by which God's people are to take all kinds of different animals for different kinds of sacrifices, but most often a lamb, a sheep or a goat, to take it and to kill it in sacrifice to God. These sacrifices are to, to make them right with God. These sacrifices are because of their sin. Because of their sin, something has to die. 
And so what we see is we see all of these animals being in this sacrificial system in order to make the people of God right with God. Because they still sin against him. And their sin needs to be paid for. needs to be covered. Now, I know a lot of you guys have heard about the sacrificial system before. Maybe you have a Bible class and you've talked about it. Maybe it's come up in your, your Sunday school class at church or whatever it is. And you might have heard that that sacrificial system in the Old Testament, that that used to be the way that they, that they paid for their sins. That in the Old Testament, they would sacrifice a, a goat or something, and then that would pay for their sins and make them right with God. And then the next year, they had to do it again to make them right with God again. But you know, the Bible actually tells us that's not true. Because in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, it tells us that the blood of animals cannot take away the sins of man. That those, those Israelites in the Passover, when they killed that lamb and painted that on their doorpost, that didn't pay for their sins. That didn't pay for their sins because that lamb can't pay for the sins of a person. No, instead, what that sacrificial system is, what that, that lamb that was killed by each of those Israelite households is, is it's foreshadowing. How many of you guys ever talked about foreshadowing in your English classes, yeah? How many of you guys think, yeah, I think we maybe talked about that, but I didn't pay attention and I have no idea what it is? All right, well, I'm gonna give you an example, an example of foreshadowing, and we're gonna go deep nerd here, so track with me if you can, okay? In the third perfect movie ever made, there are three perfect movies, they are Jurassic Park, Back to the Future, and The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Now, now you can argue that there are movies that you like more, but each of those movies are perfectly written. There's not a scene wasted. There's not a line of dialogue wasted. If you want to learn how to be a screenwriter, watch those three movies. Well, in the third, dude, Napoleon Dynamite. No, 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 no. Okay, okay, okay. I know, I know you're in junior high and your prefrontal cortex is not fully developed yet, but I'm sitting up here with Jurassic Park, Back to the Future, and Empire Strikes Back. You're bringing me Napoleon Dynamite. No, thank you. All right. So, all right, all right. Guys, calm down. Listen, listen. Here's my example. We're talking about foreshadowing. We're talking about foreshadowing. In the Empire Strikes Back, if you haven't seen it, you have my permission to just kind of tune out for a second, right? In the Empire Strikes Back, there's this scene on Dagobah where Luke is training with Yoda and he goes into this force swamp, right? There's this dark force energy. He goes in and he sees this vision of Darth Vader, right? And he goes and he ends up with his lightsaber. He cuts off this fake Darth Vader's head and the helmet kind of rolls right? And then it explodes. And whose face is in Darth Vader's helmet? Luke. That's right. Luke. That is foreshadowing. Because you see, at that point, we don't know what we're going to find out at the end of the movie. And what do we find out at the end of the movie? Who is Darth Vader? His father. That's right. And so, so this is foreshadowing. At that point, Luke just thinks that Darth Vader is some pure evil guy. He's nothing like me. And then we see Luke's face in Darth Vader's helmet. 
And what's it doing? It's pointing forward to something that we are going to find out later in the story. It's pointing forward to something that's going to be important just a little bit later. What is it? It's that Darth Vader is Luke's father. And even moving forward into Return of the Jedi, we see Luke fighting against, is he going to join the dark side? You think he might do it? He doesn't do it. Darth Vader comes to the light. It's awesome. Watch Star Wars, guys. Anyway, anyway, here's the point. Here's the point. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament and the Passover that we see in Exodus, it's important not because of what it is in and of itself. It's important because of what it points forward to. It's important because of what it points forward to. Because it sets up this idea that the only way for us to be saved from the wrath of God is by the blood of a perfect, spotless sacrifice. The only way for us to be freed from captivity, from slavery, is by the blood of a perfect, spotless sacrifice. The only way to be, for us to be saved from certain death that is the payment that we deserve for our sin is by the blood of a perfect and spotless sacrifice. But the blood of animals is not enough. As it says in Hebrews chapter 10, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away the sins of the world. We need something more. We need a greater sacrifice. We need a perfect sacrifice. Because if we don't have one, then we are in our sin and we are the ones who pay the price. It is our death. We need a perfect sacrifice. Let me read a little bit out of Hebrews chapter 10. I've mentioned it a few times, but I'm going to go to, chapter, to verse 12 where it says this. We'll go 11, verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. He's talking about that Old Testament sacrifice. He's talking about all of those bulls and goats, lambs that were killed in this Old Testament system. He says that they do it every day and it can never take away sins because it's not enough in and of itself. It's pointing towards something greater. He's about to tell us what that is. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Guys, this is the gospel. 
This is the good news. This is the best news that you could ever hear. It's that you are a sinner. You have offended a righteous and holy God. You have sinned against the king of the universe. You have committed cosmic treason and you deserve death. You deserve separation from him. You deserve punishment just like the Egyptians did. But the good news is that that same righteous God is also a loving God. And he provides a sacrifice for you just like he did for the Israelites. He provides a perfect, sinless, spotless lamb. For those in Israel, it was a real lamb. They were covered in the blood of an actual, literal lamb, and so God's wrath passed over them. But for you and me, the sacrifice for us was the lamb of God, the one that those lambs back in Egypt pointed forwards to the ones that they foreshadowed. The sacrifice for our sins and for theirs as well is the perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. As John the Baptist says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the gospel. It's that Jesus is the spotless lamb that we need. That he lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. His whole life, he never once disobeyed his father. He never once sinned. He never once robbed God of his glory. He lived a life of perfect obedience one that I can't live, that you can't live. But then that perfect, sinless lamb went to the cross and he died in our place so that the wrath of God would pass over us and land on his shoulders. In 1 Peter, he says it this way. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness and by his wounds we are healed. That lamb at the Passover points towards the lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world, points towards Jesus who will be born 1,500 years later, live a perfect life for over 30 years, and then go and die on the cross, not because of anything that he did, not because of anything he did wrong, not because of any sin that he had, but he died in our place the perfect sacrifice once for all to pay for our sins. But that's not the end of the gospel message. See, the great news about Jesus, it doesn't end with our sins paid for and our Savior dead. 
It doesn't end with the cross because as we celebrated just this last Sunday, Jesus didn't stay dead. Three days later, after dying in my place and dying in yours, three days later, after bearing the weight of the wrath of God that he didn't deserve, three days later, he walked out of the grave by the power of his Father, by the power of his Spirit. He rose again and he defeated sin and death. His enemies were made a footstool for his feet. And why is that important? Why is that important for you? Why is that important for me? Think back to the Passover. When God's wrath and judgment was poured out onto the nation of Egypt and God's people were saved, they weren't just saved from one thing. They were saved by the blood on their doorposts from the wrath of God. But they were saved from something else as well. They were saved from slavery. They were saved from slavery. Guys, the good news of the gospel is not just that we're saved from the penalty of our sin. And we are. Through the gospel, we're saved from the penalty of our sin. Jesus took that on himself so that we don't have to bear it because we can't. But the good news of the gospel doesn't stop there. Jesus died to save us from the penalty of our sin, but he rose again to save us from the power of our sin. Scripture tells us that on our own, we're not only dead in sin, but we are slaves to sin. We are powerless against sin. This morning, when we talked about sin, I'm sure many of you thought of something some sin in your life that you feel like has power over you, something you keep coming back to, some sin you keep falling back into. But guys, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died to pay for that sin and he rose again to break the chains of bondage that that sin has on you, to set you free from slavery to sin. See, just like the blood on the doorpost points forward to Jesus, God's people walking out of captivity and walking out of slavery points forward to the resurrection. It points forward to Jesus as well. Listen to this in Romans chapter six. Romans chapter six, if you wanna turn there with me, I'll be in verse six. And we know that our old self was crucified with him, was killed along with Jesus. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again and death no longer has dominion, no longer has power over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. 
but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also, if you're in Christ, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let sin, therefore, let, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death into life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion, no power over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Guys, this is the good news of the gospel. We see it foreshadowed in Exodus, but we see it played out clearly in the perfect life the substitutionary, meaning in our place, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. He is the perfect, spotless lamb. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't. He died the death that we deserved, and he rose again so that we could have new life, new life in him, no longer slaves to sin, no longer powerless to fight against sin, but now filled with the Holy Spirit of God, given the, the power of God's Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, lives in us, and by the power of His Spirit, we can overcome the power of sin in our lives. Because the old you, the you before you knew Christ, that you is gone if you know Jesus. That you that was a slave to sin died with him on the cross and now you've been given new life, resurrected as a new creature. And this is all about God's love. talking about the attributes of God, the characteristics of God. We saw his holiness, his power, his majesty, we saw his wrath, his justice. But the gospel is about God's love. Most famous verse in the Bible, I'm sure many, many, many of you know it, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. He so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not die, will not face God's wrath and judgment that they deserve, but will have everlasting life. And when we say everlasting life, for so many of us, if you're like me, you grew up in church, you heard everlasting life, everlasting life, everlasting life, and you think that everlasting life starts when you die. You think the everlasting life means that you go to heaven when you die. And it does mean that, but that's not all it means. This everlasting life, this abundant life, this eternal life that we are promised in Jesus, it starts the moment we put our faith in him and we, are, we break free from the chains of sin by the power of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. This is a demonstration of God's love for us, that Jesus died for us, and that he rose again for us. 
So here's what we're going to do. I know tonight there are many of you in here who are followers of Christ. And I know that there are many of you who aren't. And maybe you're not a follower of Christ, but everyone thinks you are. You go to a Christian school, you've grown up in church, but you've never really put your faith and your trust in Jesus. Well, guys, tonight is your chance to do that. Tonight is your chance to say, I realize, God, that you are holy, that you are mighty, that you are perfect. And I realize that I'm not, that I've sinned, that I've robbed you of glory that belongs to you and you alone. God, I realize that I've disobeyed you. I realize that I've broken your law and that I deserve your wrath and your judgment. But God, I want to be set free from my sin. I want my sins to be paid for by Jesus on the cross. I want to walk in eternal life today free from the power of sin in my life. I want to be who you've made me to be. I want to know and to love and to serve you. I want to live in relationship with you today and forevermore. If that's you tonight, if you've never made that commitment before, then in just a little bit, I'm going to pray, and Jeff's going to dismiss you guys. And when he does, I would encourage you. I'm not going to encourage I'm going to, I'm going to beg you, if that's you, and you want to do that to put your faith and your trust in Jesus for the first time tonight, then when I dismiss everybody or when Jeb dismisses everybody here in a little bit, I want you to stay. Because, guys, this is an incredibly big deal. This is a matter of life and death. And more than that, this is not just a matter of life and death. This is a matter of wrath and eternal life. So if you want to do that for the first time tonight, or even if you just have questions, if some things that I've said have popped some, some questions into your brain and you want to ask those questions, then when everyone's dismissed, I want you to stay back and I want you to talk to your counselors. I want you to ask those questions. I want you to open up the Bible with them and see how God answers those questions. But there's another group of you in here as well that I want to speak to. Probably the group I would have been in if I was in this room as a junior higher. And that's those of you who have put your faith and your trust in Jesus. You say, I'm a Christian, I, I prayed to Jesus, but, but I still feel like sin has a hold on me. You're talking about this, this freedom from the power of sin. You're talking about the chains of sin being broken so that I can live a life that's for God and not for me, but I don't feel that. I've trusted in Jesus and I think I'm going to heaven when I die, but I still feel like sin has this grip on me and I can't break it. 
Well, I just wanna give you this encouragement. If you've really put your faith and trust in Jesus, then you are not a slave to sin. That doesn't mean you won't mess up. That doesn't mean you won't sin. But it does mean that sin no longer has dominion, has power over you because you belong to Christ. You are covered in his blood and you are given his life. But if that's you and you have questions about what that looks like to live the new life that you've been given in Jesus, to break those chains of sin in your life, if you have questions about that, then I would encourage you, when we dismiss here in a second, I want you to stay back as well. I want you to stay back and talk to your counselors as well. Counselors, if you see your kids stay back, go to them and don't assume what they're saying. Ask them, why are you staying back? Because there might be kids here who you think have already made a profession of faith in Jesus, who want to do that for the first time tonight, or there might be kids here who you don't really know if they have, and they're just struggling with sin, but they have put their faith and trust in Christ. But whatever the Holy Spirit is doing in you, whatever he's moving and working in you students, if you have questions, if you want to know more, or if you want to surrender your life to Christ for the first time, or ask what it means to have those chains of sin broken, then I want you to stay back when Jeb dismisses. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the Passover. Thank you for the many stories and structures of the Old Testament that point forward to the new. The lambs of the Old Testament that point forward to the ultimate lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the perfect, spotless sacrifice once for all, for the sins of all mankind. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that while we deserve only wrath and punishment, that your son came to the earth, that you lived a perfect life, that you died the death that we deserve, and that you rose again so that we could have new, eternal, abundant, everlasting life with you. God, I thank you for these incredible, powerful truths. God, I pray for these campers in here, these students in here, who your spirit is working on their heart, drawing them towards the truth of your gospel. God, I pray that you would continue to do that, that they would come to see you tonight, to put their faith and their trust in you, to devote the rest of their lives from this point forward on through eternity to you, God, because you are worthy. Father, we thank you for your loving, saving, merciful grace. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.